Are you a podcaster or a future podcaster? Then you should know about Acast. The world's best podcasters work with Acast, including the one you're listening to right now. And anyone can join and start podcasting with us. It's easy. We have everything you need to host and grow your show and share it across every podcast app out there. You know what else? You can make money from it too. Visit acast.com forward slash hosting to find out more and get started for free. Acast, for the stories. Who are you most likely to help when they need it most? Just the people you feel are close to your heart? Or would you reach out the hand of care for those opposed to your vision of the world? What state would they need to be in for you to help? Or would you just see past this and see them too as human and lend a hand? It is the life of a woman from Sligo which answers these questions for us. This is her story. In the wild, untamed and restless hills of Sligo in 1888, in an area called Cluna, a child was born. Her name was Linda Cairns. Linda was one of eight children brought into the world by her parents, Thomas and Catherine. She grew up with her siblings with very little to their name. Like many of their peers in rural Ireland at the time, the promise of a daily meal was not often one which could be kept. In order to try and help their children elevate themselves from the grips of poverty, her parents emphasised the importance of education to their children. Linda spent each day in school, returned home and completed her evening lessons by a dim fire as a source of light. When she completed her schooling, Linda decided she was to become a nurse. She had a great interest in helping others and caring for anyone who required it. In 1907, she began her nursing studies, taking great care to learn as much as she could. Linda had no interest in politics or the political whims of those who led nations. She just wanted to help as many people as she could. In 1911, whilst training in Belmullet, she spent time working in the Typhus Hospital. At the time, there was a typhus epidemic in Mayo, and this was the front line of the battle against it. Scale Falaguer During the famine in Ireland, as a result of the living conditions of the poor, disease spread across the land. Typhus, cholera, typhoid and dysentery had made their homes in the dwellings of the poor. The mass collections of people in the poorhouses and soup kitchens became feeding grounds for the diseases. The strategy of the British government effectively amounted to a state-sanctioned culling of the Irish population. The strategy also meant that living conditions would not improve afterwards. As a result of the strategy, the diseases stayed. and the diseases of the 19th century horror show carried into the 20th century. 
Ireland became unique in that the people were fighting the same battles against illnesses that they were 100 years previous, but were not entitled to avail of any of the advances in medicine. Epidemics were a common issue, particularly in the west of Ireland where the poorest of the poor still clung to life. It was in this hospital where her world's views and her role in them would change forever. She saw that this hospital, where they had been trying to save lives, was not a hospital at all. It was a disused barn and was barely converted to be called a hospital. There were multiple holes in the roof and walls. Patients slept on the floors where cattle and sheep had recently lived. During storms, patients had to be moved on a regular basis due to the rain crashing in on them. It was here she began to take note of politics. She began researching as to why this hospital was in such a state, why the other hospitals she had trained in were not far off these conditions, and why the hospitals in Ireland were not of the same standard of those in Britain. The more she learned, the more she began to blame the British government ruling in Ireland as the problem. She recognised that the Irish people were being seen as cogs in the Empire's gears rather than human beings. They were just machines with hands that could provide crops and other goods for the Empire to make the rich richer. She began to understand the systematic plan by the government to ensure that the harp would always be below the crown. She saw as the best way for her to be able to help those who needed most, she would need to play a role in expelling this unsympathetic rule from her country, away from her people. These thoughts festered in her mind for a few years, but she wasn't sure what to do or how she could help. Then, as World War I broke out, rumours began swelling around Ireland that those who would pick up weapons for the Empire would be the people who would make Ireland's wishes appear more favourable in the British government's eyes and freedom may finally be granted. At this stage, Linda was now working in Dublin. Whilst in Dublin, she made the habit of visiting a friend in a hospital known as Miss Quinn's home. Patients here would often come and go, none more or less remarkable than the last. Nobody worth really remembering, no lasting effects on your day from the interactions you may share with them. She sat by her friend's bedside and explained to her that she was intending on enlisting herself in the British Army to head to Europe to work as a nurse in the war effort. She explained that doing so might help Ireland push its head above the muck which it had been drowning in. As she spoke, she was rudely interrupted by another patient in the ward. He explained to her that what she was saying was not true that her efforts would in fact be in vain and when she returned from the war, or rather, if she returned from the war, she would return to a land beaten by the deaths of the Empire's cost of war. 
a land decimated by the loss of its youth to hellfire in Europe. A land no longer just struggling to breathe, but rather a land being pushed towards the edges of memory. She explained to this man of the things she saw in Belmullet and of the research she had done. He too told her his stories, similar in nature, the suffering of the poor in order to feed the wasteful wealthy. The man told her of an Irish group he had been involved with and invited her to join him. It was the Gaelic League, the group trying to save the Celtic soul of Ireland. The man's name was Thomas Macdonough. The two shared a friendship through their political views and links to the Irish freedom movements. Linda did not formally join any of the groups working towards freedom, but was involved in one way or another with the majority of them. She was often asked to lecture them and to teach them of first aid, particularly first aid in a battle setting should it be required. In April 1916, Thomas McDonough and the other men and women Linda had met and spent a lot of time with over the previous few months marched across Dublin, took up vital points across the city and began a war for Irish freedom. As Linda sat in her front room listening for news on the rising, there was a booming knock on her front door. She opened the door to meet her neighbour, John O'Mahony, who told her people were getting badly hurt and asked if there was anything she could do to help. He handed her a note signed by Eamon de Valera, which just said, please admit Nurse Cairns. She thought that de Valera was intending to use her to pass messages between the GPO and Boland's Mill. She had different ideas. She packed all the medical supplies she could and ran to an empty house in North Great George's Street, a house belonging to some fancy old lady far away in Britain who had built her wealth on the corpses of the poor. When she set herself up, she ran down to a chemist nearby called Toomey's, run by a family who she understood to be sympathetic to the Republican movement. They gave her everything she wanted and more. When she returned, she put a red cross up in the window of the house, a symbol to all that she was there to help. Regardless of what side of the battle you were on, if you were wounded, she would help. As hell broke loose in the city of the castles and hovels, Linda's makeshift hospital offered sanctuary from the violence and offered a symbol of calm amongst the chaos. As the battle raged on and Dublin burnt to the ground, Linda continued to treat all those who came to her door. As she treated a bullet wound on a British soldier who was bleeding heavily and begging her to make sure he would return to his mother alive, Linda looked up to find the rifle pointed directly at her. On the other end of the weapon which makes the meek feel mighty was a British army officer. He told her that she was to stop what she was doing immediately. 
She protested, saying she is helping everyone, British and Irish. He replied that British soldiers do not require the assistance of peasants. Other soldiers came in and cleared the building. Linda spent the next few days of the Rising running across Dublin helping anyone she found wounded. On the Friday, a young boy ran up to her shouting, Help, help, please help, he's been shot. She asked him what had happened, who had been shot. The boy explained that Michael O'Rahilly had led the escape from the GPO and had been hit. He had been seen writing something and begging his creator to stop the bleeding. Linda grabbed the stretcher and followed the boy to where O'Rahilly lay. When they arrived, they saw a British officer standing over the body of the man they once knew. They were too late. He had already enjoyed his last breath. In her own words, she later stated, I regretted that I was not able to do something for that brave man. In the weeks that followed, Linda watched as one by one the leaders were executed. Her darkest day came as she heard of the execution of her dear friend, Thomas McDonough. The experience of the battle made Linda even more furious about the role Britain had in Ireland. She was not seen as worthy enough to even help their wounded. She also now understood war and battles and the role medicine has in them. After the rising, she entered private nursing working for the O'Connor Morris family. When her employer passed away, he left her a gift of £2,500 as a thank you for the care she had given him. Linda took this money and purchased a car for herself. In 1917, Michael Collins learned of Linda's new car and asked her to use it to transmit messages and weapons for a new rising which was to start as soon as he could see a time to strike a final blow for Ireland. Linda was one of the few people in the freedom movement who had access to a car. For the next few years, she travelled the length and breadth of Ireland, carrying messages and carrying weapons to where they would one day be needed. In her new role, she met those who would go on to be the key figures leading the guerrilla warriors of the Flying Columns, although none of them yet knew what their role in Irish history would be. Being a woman, she evaded the police and black and tans at their checkpoints. They did not recognise that the women of Ireland had agency and an ability to think for themselves and make decisions of violence if and when required. On one of her runs, she carried a man called Jim Devins through Sligo. As they rounded a corner, they met a checkpoint with a lorry load of auxiliaries waiting for them. Devins would have been known to be part of the movement. Linda and Jim looked at each other and immediately understood the danger they were in. Linda asked them, shall I rush through? Jim said no, and before they knew it, they had both been ripped out of the car and pressed against the wall. 
car was searched and they heard an officer shout, shoot them. They watched as a conversation about their lives took place and they were instead thrown into the back of a lorry and taken to a barracks in Sligo. Linda spent the next few hours being repeatedly beaten by the black and tans. She had her skin torn as though it was their plaything, her bones broken as if they were sticks, and punched until her vision was so blurry that she could not make out shapes. Her teeth were pushed back into her skull. She was placed in a cell with Jim and other volunteers. She told them, as she was the only woman there, she would say that all the weapons were hers. She knew that it would look bad internationally if they executed a woman. That is what she did, and she was sentenced to ten years in prison while saving the lives of the others. She spent the first few years of her sentence in Mountjoy. In October 1921, Linda and three other women escaped the walls of the prison, a story which made it onto the front of the New York Times under the heading, Four Women Break Jail. Michael Collins had arranged their escape and sent them to four different safe houses. A man called Seamus Burke visited each of them, telling them that they needed to regroup for safety. When Collins heard of this, he arranged that they be hidden in an IRA training camp, as Burke was a British spy trying to return them to jail. They stayed here until the Irish Anglo Treaty was signed. After the war ended and Ireland later came through a horrific civil war, Linda entered a life of politics and became one of the five women elected to the executive of Fianna Fáil when it formed, and later served in the Shannad. In 1929, she married a man named Wilson Charles McWinney, a former commanding officer of the IRA's Derry Brigade. Together, they had a daughter named Anne. On the 5th of June, 1951, at the age of 62, Having lived a life of adventure and chaos, Linda took her final rest and joined Thomas Macdonough at the table of those who gave it all for Ireland, in the land above the clouds. In the year of her death, she received the Florence Nightingale Medal from the International Red Cross for her role during the Easter Rising. Today's music was written, performed and produced by myself, Ryan O'Halloran. The story was researched and scripted by Oren. If you enjoyed this story and want to help to support the podcast, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash we the Irish or leave us a review on your podcast app. Ryan is Anam Dunn, Gaurav Mahagut,
Did you know this podcast is powered by Acast? Acast is the home of podcasting for creators looking for freedom to grow their listeners and make money too. And creative brands looking for smart ways to advertise. Podcasters and advertisers in the know know Acast. It's time you did too. Visit Acast.com to find out more. Acast for the stories.